Okay. Um, my name is Greg Chan. I'm one of the elders in the church. And um, I'm going to be speaking today and um, just give uh, Pastor Paul a break this week. And, um, but before I get into the word, I'd like to ask Dick to come and pray for me. Shall we bow our heads? Dear Lord, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your servant, Greg, that he has stepped up to uh, present your word. We ask you to be with him as he presents what you've given him in his heart and that he may present that to us so that we may understand. And we thank you so much for your presence here and being with him. In thy name, amen. So I'll start with a story. Um, on the screen here, there's a book that I recently purchased. And the title sounded interesting to me. It says, In Understanding Genesis. So as many of you might know, I'm quite interested in reading Genesis. Today we're going to be reading Genesis 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. And I apologize, I didn't have notes ahead of time. But the title of this book looked interesting, Understanding Genesis. And I, I love reading about Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters. It's all their core doctrines of our faith can be found in Genesis. So I thought that this book would be a very deep dive into the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But it turns out it was nothing like that. <laughs> uh, the key points of this book are that to direct your, your thoughts towards who is the author of the Bible. And as we, as we know, and um, the Bible is written by men, but God is also the author of the Bible. This book um, is tuning my mind and heart towards a very high view of scripture. So it, um, we get lots of ideas about how to interpret scripture and how to read scripture, but um, I think it's, it's been very helpful to tune my thoughts and heart toward a very high view of God's word. Um, hermeneutics are more than just the grammatical historical method, taking the word in context, and more than allegory. So there is lot, a lot more to it. And it really helped me to think about what type of book are we reading? So if I read Genesis, Genesis is plainly written as a historical account of the events. Um, at the beginning of time. But um, there's a difference between prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the poetic books like Psalms and uh, Proverbs. There's also a big section on logic and how to reconcile what we are seemingly contradictory parts of the Bible. And another key point that I took from reading this book is that clear parts of scripture should be used to interpret the poetic or less clear parts of scripture, not the other way around. Not that we need another book to interpret scripture. We should be able to read the word and gain a great vast amount of knowledge from reading the word by itself. But this book was quite helpful. Um, you don't actually get into Genesis until about halfway through the book. <laughs> but just to recap, 
Um, I've been, whenever I've been asked to speak, I've been re going through Genesis. So um, Genesis 1 is the creation week. There are six days, days one to six. First day is light and darkness are created. Second day, water and land is created and separated. Day three, plants are created. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. And day six is land, animals, and the pinnacle of creation, which is man. In Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. Genesis 2 is finishing the creation week, day seven, and the Sabbath is established. A focusing in on man happens after that, and male and female are established, and marriage is also established, another core doctrine. Genesis 3 is the fall, which is the choice of man to rebel against God's word. From that, there is separation between man and God, corruption of creation, which is the curse, and the promise from God to redeem us. Genesis 4 is Cain and Abel and the lineage of Cain. Genesis 5 is the lineage of Adam through Seth. Lifespans of each generation, especially in relation to the flood of Noah's day. And Genesis 6 is describing the events prior to the flood. Those, the people are against God. There's corruption throughout the entire world. Man and earth and all flesh is all corrupted. And Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. He walked with God, and God instructs Noah to build a large vessel, the ark. So now we come to Genesis 7. Here God is giving us the account through Moses, the events leading into the worldwide global catastrophic flood. The events in this chapter are similar to the previous sermons that I've put together for Genesis 1 to 6. So <clears throat> regularly I've been comparing and contrasting the two opposing worldviews. We have God's word and we have man's word. Okay? God's word, the Bible, is infallible. Infallible means that it's never wrong, never failing, or making a mistake. So how do we put together God's word and man's observations and theories. And why does that matter? Well, <clears throat> God's word gives us truth. As followers of Jesus Christ, we believe him to be our savior. All human beings are sinners, separated from God. God being holy hates sin. God being just provides a consequence for sin. God is consistent and unfailing. His promises are true. The wages and consequence and payment for sin is death. We receive, we receive physical death here in this life as justice for rebelling against God. We also receive eternal separation in hell because of sin. But the truth is, we can be reconciled to and made right with God if we humble ourselves and believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to pay that debt. Jesus took the wrath of our holy God upon himself, died on a cross, he's buried, resurrected on the third day, and ascended to heaven, so that those who believe in him could be reconciled to God. 
This is a very basic version of the gospel message. And as Christians and as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand this to be true. So I'd like to compare the account. You, I've shown this slide before, but as plainly described in Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, things are perfect. We are created. It was a purposeful action. Then there is free will that occurred here. So choice, man's choice is to sin, to go against God's word, and... The result of that is death and corruption that spread throughout creation. We are living out the consequence of sin, and the only solution for that is Jesus. One day death will be done away with, and that's, that is our hope. Compare that to man's opinion, where the beginning was imperfect. There was, there was chaos, random chance. Death is always present, it's part of the evolutionary process. There's blind progression of organisms that are trying and failing, trial and error, and then we have new organisms and more complex organisms. Where is our hope? Why would we need a savior? How are these two views compatible? And there's another image that might help. So again, in the beginning, things were perfect and created. And here, in the garden, we had free will. And man's choice was to sin. And the result of that is death and corruption. We're living out that consequence. And Jesus is the solution for that. One day, death will be done away with, and we have hope. But if we believe, believe man's word, then there have been millions of years of death and trial and error. It's random chance. Death is always present. There's blind progression. There's no creator. Where's our hope in that view? Why do we need a savior? So through Adam, death is a payment for sin. And by a man, Adam, came death. Jesus came to take on the wrath of God to be the atoning sacrifice, the payment for our debt, to defeat death. God's word plainly read, death being the wages for sin and Jesus being the solution to sin is consistent with the gospel message. But man's opinion with death existing before man for millions of years is inconsistent with the gospel message. Now, I'm, I'm not forcing anyone to believe that, but I'm trying to make a convincing argument to be consistent. So I've read several books on, on this, and there are some believing Christians that believe in theistic evolution, that God somehow directed that evolutionary process. There's a day-age theory where each day of creation is large epochs of time that took millions of years. There's a framework hypo hypothesis that the days of the week are just a... Uh, a frame to describe what happened. There's a gap theory that there was a day of creation, then years and years and millions of years, and there's another creative event, and then many years. All of those examples are compatible with, compatible with and require long ages. There are, there are multiple points 
in Genesis where long ages are entry points into the Bible. It's contested in Genesis 1 where long ages say that God could not have created as described. Scientists believe otherwise, so we add long ages to, to make, make sense of it. It's also contested in this portion of Genesis, in Genesis 6 to 9, with the worldwide global flood. God could not have flooded the entire world because scientists believe in prehistoric ages that lasted for millions or billions of years. There are fossil records that are evidence of this, and it must have been, therefore, a small local flood. And I'll say it this way, a shorter timeline is consistent with God's word, but a longer timeline requires adding Mad's opinion with God's word. So this is not directly a salvation issue, but I believe that adding long ages is preaching another version of the gospel. Evolution is not a benign thought or belief. <clears throat> it is the root of many human evils, including eugenics, abortion, Marxism, cultural Marxism, totalitarian regimes, and treating human beings as not human beings. So this is a false doctrine that I think we need to resist. It's within our schools, it's within popular thinking, and it is antithetical to what God's word says. God's word helps us to make sense of where our hope lies. So, <clears throat> the outline is that I'll go through Genesis 7, and I think it's broken up into these four parts here. So there's verses 1 to 5, which are the instructions that God gives to Noah. Verses 6 to 12 are focusing in on what is going to happen with the flood and the ark. Verses 13 to 16 are focusing on Noah and his family. And 17 to 14 are the flood itself. Then I will show verses that confirm the internal validity within the Bible for the account of Noah. And this is part of the hermeneutic that I've, um, that I've learned, is that there's a redemptive hermeneutic we need to see Christ through every part of scripture. He is the focal point of our existence, and he's the focal point of God's word. So we must look for his presence and archetypes of him through scripture. So I'll point out what I see here in Genesis 7. So let's start in Genesis 7, verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> I have picked a, gen a different translation for better clarity. So, um, and I've come to learn that translations are done by man. <laughs> and, you know, the, the Bible is written in its original language in Hebrew and in Greek, but um, our current translations are our best efforts to render that into a language that we can understand. So I'm tr I'll try, my, try better to say this in a language that is more understandable. So, <clears throat> this is from the New, New American Standard Version, or New, New, Stan, New American Standard Bible. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, 
a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. So in verse 1, remember that in Genesis 6, verse 9, it's written, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. God is deemed to be the only one who is righteous, just, lawful, and in his conduct and character. God determines that Noah is righteous, and in this generation and time and age is when he is determined to be righteous. Noah's household was advised to enter the ark, Genesis 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. In verse 2, notice that the word clean comes up. And this is, clean is an adjective, and it's described as pure in the physical or ceremonial form. And animal is a noun, and it's defined as cattle here, if you look up the Strong's Concordance. So how do we know which animals are clean? How do we know? This is the first description where God is telling Noah to bring clean animals. <clears throat> so we can look later in Leviticus 11. It's also referenced in Leviticus 20:25 20, and Deuteronomy 14, where God instructs Moses on what is clean and unclean for eating. And I want to say that again. That's for eating. Perhaps Moses is writing this section with his current knowledge of what is clean and unclean. However, in this context, God is instructing Noah in this particular situation on what is clean and unclean. So the details of what is clean and unclean are not explicitly described here, but God sets the standard. God sets the standard. We also have to remember that at this time, man does not eat flesh or animals. Thus, the clean and unclean distinction is, may not be related to human consumption. After the flood in Genesis 9:3, God permits Noah and his family to eat animals. So, what constitutes a clean animal? <clears throat> if you look back in the previous chapters in Genesis, up to this point in history, God has provided animal skins in Genesis 3 to cover Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4, Abel provided the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The flock are defined as small cattle or sheep goats. If we peek ahead to Genesis 8, just still in the same context, Noah sacrifices to the Lord every clean animal and every clean bird. So therefore, in this context, clean could include an acceptable animal, cattle, and bird for sacrifice. I also want to note in verse 2 that God is instructing Noah, just as in Genesis 6, to bring in male and female. God is explicitly advising Noah of the distinctiveness between male and female. That they are different and necessary. Different and necessary. Notice the additional word, his. Um, here. And here. Um, the, I'll get into this in the next slide, but the Hebrew has an extra little mark before female, which isn't in the other sections where it says male and female. 
So is there a connection? We'll talk about it on the next slide. But also note that for the clean animals, sevens enter the ark, sevens. Okay. So hopefully that shows up clear, but male and his female. So this Hebrew word is, is the Hebrew word for female, but there's this extra, I don't know if you want to call it a jot or a tittle. There's a, there's a purpose for that being there. Um, so I thought that was interesting to look that up in an interlinear Bible. So there's a connection between the male and female. It's not just a male and a female. It's male and his female. They're already paired together. So for the seven pairs, there's also two possibilities that I've found when trying to to make sense of what it means by seven, sevens. So one possibility is that there are seven pairs, so 14 animals, seven pairs, or you can have seven animals, two pairs and an extra, so that would be five animals. So which one do we pick here if we're trying to understand what God's trying to tell us here? I believe that there is better evidence for seven pairs. So other areas of the text, when they talk about the number seven, for example, when he says, in seven days I'm going to send the flood, there's only one seven there. There's only one of these, these words, which is seven. Okay? But here, in this particular passage, it says seven, seven. Seven, seven. Okay? So here, it is written twice together. And they're also entering the ark by twos. So if they're entering the ark by twos, then if there's seven pairs, there's no conflict. They're entering by male and female pairs. So clean animals, there's 14 total, seven pairs. However, if you have the seven animals view, it could create a conflict since animals are supposed to enter by twos, male and female. It could be explained this way that the text in Genesis in seven, sorry, the text in Genesis seven does not state that they entered by their kind, like horse kind, cat kind, dinosaur kind. They entered by twos, male and female. So therefore, you could have a one clean male of one kind with a clean male of another kind entering together, entering by twos, male and female and still be compatible with the seven clean animals, seven animals view, but it would be more challenging to fit as in that way. So if you read it as seven clean animals, it requires more explaining and more gymnastics. And what do you think of the Hebrew text where it's written seven, seven? And what do you do with male and his female, where they're specifically paired together? So. For these reasons, I think seven pairs makes more sense looking at the words. Okay, well, continuing on. Genesis 7, verses 3 to 5. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. 
Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. In verse 3, God is again indicating to Noah the distinctness of, between male and female, that they are different and necessary for life after the flood. And this repeats what he, he had told Noah in Genesis 6, 19 to 20. And this fits how we understand and observe mating, offspring, biology, reproduction. Verse 4, God is instructing Noah of the upcoming flood, the timeline. He will blot, which is an action, to wipe, erase, exterminate, and obliterate from the face of the land every living thing. When it says face of the land, that means that from the surface of the ground, the living substance will be, will be blotted out. And in verse 5, this is the end of the instructions from God to Noah. And also, this is the first of three repeats that Noah did all that God commanded in, in Genesis 7. So I indicated that with a number one. Okay. So Genesis 7, verses 6 to 7. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. So this is the start of the second section. It repeats what, what the instructions were, but it focuses in on God's commands in verses 1 to 4. Okay, so this is that funny graph that I made again. Um, <clears throat> but um, these are the lifespans um, from Adam to Abraham. And I want to specifically note around the time of the flood, which is here, okay, before and after the flood, God decrees that he's going to limit the time of what's going on to 120 years. If you remember, I spoke about this in Genesis 6. So that happens when Noah's 480 years old at this green line here. And then the worldwide catastrophic flood occurs when Noah is 600 years old. So verses 8 and 9. So, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Noah received the instructions from God, then these are the actions of Noah. He and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark. They were already in the ark. And then the clean and unclean animals, birds, all creeping things, entered the ark by twos, male and female. And this is the second of three instances where it specifically states that Noah did as he was commanded. Verses 10 to 12. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came up on the, upon the earth, came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So verse 10 is the timeline occurring as God had described in verse 4. 
verse 11, gives a particular date as to the beginning of the flood. So working backwards, God's instructions in verses 1 to 4 occurred on the second month of the tenth day. Because God declared in seven days that the flood would occur. Then the flood begins on the seventeenth day of the month. Fountains of the great deep. So the fountain is a noun, it's a thing. It's described as a spring and a well. The deep is also a noun. It's a surging mass of water, subterranean water supply, abyss. Burst open, that's an action. So break forth, split, cleave, rent, and ripped. This is a massive event that occurred. The floodgates are described as a lattice, a window, or a sliding gate. This is a massive event, a below and above ground. I mean, the above ground really, we, we don't have a difficulty imagining that because it could rain. It could rain really hard. If you were in the tropics, there's like deluges, or I'll put, say deluges with a quotation because it's not really a deluge like this, but the, you can have huge rainfalls that occur in a very short period of time. But imagine that for 40 days. And then below ground, imagine this, that if we were to explain it scientifically, we've never seen anything like this, but if tectonic plates that are below the surface of the earth are cracking and moving, then, and there are depths in the sea that we have not explored yet, that that could be the source of the massive changes and the large amount of water that comes out from below. So scientifically, we could have an, we have an explanation for that, but it's something that we would never, never see again. Verse 12, there's 40 days and 40 nights, and where have we heard this before? A quick search through the Bible happens after Jacob's death, Moses and God on Mount Sinai happens a couple of times, the spies searching in Canaan, Goliath presenting himself to the Israelites, Elijah going to Mount Horeb, Ezekiel lying on his right side, throwing things at Judah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Jonah preaching repentance in Nineveh. Jesus in the wilderness, there's three accounts. And Jesus after the resurrection, before his ascension. So 40 days is a significant amount of time. Verses 13 to 14. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons went, or three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So this is the start of the third section where we're focusing in even more on the entry into the ark. Verse 13 names the specific human beings who entered the ark. And verse 14 talks about going in after its kind. And the kind is species, created group, or also defined as an ancestral gene pool. So 
one objected objection that we is common that is that this flood account, how could they fit all those animals, especially those huge dinosaurs or other large animals on such a small ship? We should have an answer for this. Okay, we, we should be able to give a logical, reasonable answer for how this could have occurred. Remember, the ark was very large in size. There's three decks. It's like a barge. And living creatures that were brought in were brought in by their kinds. So not every single species is brought in. Our current man-made distinction of how we describe organisms is domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Kinds, in the Bible, are comparable to the family or order, so it's a broader category. And we have to remember that in the beginning, God created things very good. In their kind, the living creatures had the designed DNA and genetic potential for lots of variety. We have to have a high view of scripture. God made us perfect in the beginning. However, this is degraded over time because of our sin and the curse of sin. Large animals could have been brought in as, as young, as young, so not full-size adults. And Noah was instructed to bring food for all. So we can logically reconcile those questions and give reasonable answers for the, the uh, objections to the flood account. Verse 15 and 16. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. So in verse 15, Noah and his family were in the ark, and animals entered by twos. In verse 16, the Lord closed the door, the only door to enter the ark. There's only one way in. And this is the third mention of Noah obeying God. Verses 17 and 18. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. So this fourth section is greater detail on the flood proper. There was so much water that this boat was lifted up and it floated. Verses 19 and 20. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. So this adds to the previous verse explaining that this happened everywhere. All the mountains everywhere were covered. And a cubit is approximately 20 inches, the length of an adult male's forearm, like in this picture. So this is the flood that happened in BC a couple of years ago. This is a picture of a local flood, a local flood. 
To make long ages compatible with Genesis, you'd have to pick a local flood. To make scripture compatible with evolution and theistic evolution and day-age theory, a local flood would be part of the explanation. Plainly reading what I just read in Genesis 7, the flood of Noah's day was not a local flood. And this is an artist rendering of with a cutaway of the water. Clearly this picture isn't correct because there, there's no rainbow now. Like, there's no rainbow during the flood. Rainbow happens after the flood, so just, just ignore that section. But if this is the highest mountain, this would be 15 cubits from the highest mountain. Like, that's, that's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. So verse 21 and 22. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, sorry, was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Note that the same Hebrew word is used for all the highlighted words here. All points to a worldwide global, catastrophic flood. Verses 23 and 24. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And that's the end of Genesis 7. So internal validity of the account of Noah. So Noah, the times in which he lived, his circumstances, the ark, the flood, his family, God's wrath, are referenced multiple times they're referenced in chronologies, but also referenced by other writers in the Bible. Here, in Isaiah 54, 9, he is comparing the promise of Noah with the promise to Zion. Now note, Isaiah is a prophetic book written in poetry. So I would say that Isaiah confirms what happened in Genesis. And here, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is stating that these three men were in the midst of God's judgment. Noah with the flood, Daniel in Babylon, Job with what happened to him and his family. They could not save those around them, those who were to receive God's wrath. But Ezekiel references Noah as a real person, a real figure who went through a real judgment. Most importantly, Jesus Christ describes Noah, the ark, and God's judgment. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, 
so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Luke 17 also describes a similar event. And, it just, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Also, in 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5, Peter also references Noah, his family, the ark, those who survived, and God's judgment. The writer of Hebrews also references Noah, the ark, his family, and God's judgment, but highlights specifically that by faith, Noah obeyed. So we have to reconcile that. Is this a real event or not? Did it happen as described or not? And I would submit that the ideas to insert long ages are a false doctrine, false gospel, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And we need to, we need to be on guard against such attacks. Seeing Christ through Genesis 7. So in verses 16 and 17, it says that the Lord closed the door. There's only a single door in the ark. And also that the flood came upon the earth and it lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus described himself as the door. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And also in John 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Just as Noah his family, and all living creatures with breath entered the ark through a single door to be saved from God's wrath. Likewise, those who believe in Jesus Christ must come to him to be saved for justification, to be saved from God's coming wrath. And just as Jesus was lifted up on a cross, the ark was lifted up by God. And also, Jesus is telling us to pay attention. Coming of the Son of Man, so it will be. The days of Noah, it'll be like that. Are we paying attention? Are we paying attention to the times? So just as Noah and his family were saved by having to go into the ark, we are saved by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So, for I hope that that encourages us as believers in Christ, that we believe in him and we are saved. And for those that have not made a decision in their hearts and their minds to follow Christ, judgment is coming. 
you need to make a decision. You need to commit yourselves to follow him, to spare yourself from the wrath that is coming. So, um, I'll close in prayer, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you, you have given us a way to come back to you through your Son, through Jesus Christ. I pray that our ears and our hearts are open to the word today and that we can go and tell others about the coming judgment, the coming wrath, and that people can be reconciled to you if they come to you. I pray that by your spirit that this happens, because it is not by our, our hands that people are saved, it is by your work. And we believe in you because we have a faith and a faith that is unwavering, and you have committed to us that you will offer us that salvation by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.